Do you want your business to grow faster? Are you open to new and out-of-the-box ways to drive revenues and increase value? How do you imagine the most successful entrepreneurs and business leaders double, triple, or expand their businesses tenfold or more? This is a weekly podcast featuring conversations with business owners, executives, and leaders as we reveal behind-the-scenes details that give you, our listeners, the confidence to pursue your own deal-driven growth. On the show, we discuss a huge variety of deals, everything from large complex mergers and acquisitions, capital raising, joint ventures, strategic alliances, real estate, affiliate and sponsorship deals, and more, including smaller deals that you can do without significant capital. My name is Corey Kupfer, and I've been supporting deal-driven growth for businesses for over 35 years as a successful entrepreneur, professional negotiator, and attorney. My goal is to help you strategize, plan for, find, and complete deals that will help your company grow faster. Welcome to the DealQuest podcast. Let's get started. Brett Martin is co-founder of Kumo Space, the virtual HQ for remote teams, and Change Ventures, a pre-seed VC based in Brooklyn, New York. He also serves as an adjunct professor at Columbia Business School, where he teaches data analytics. Brett, welcome to the podcast. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Listen, we're going to want to hear about Kumo Space and and everything you do with that and the VC investing and all of your deal experience. But before we go there, I want to take you back to when you were a little kid growing up, maybe 8, 10, 12 years old. What did you want to be? Because I my guess is the owner of a of a co-working or shared space or incubator, whatever we're going to call it, and we'll ask that later, or at a VC, we're probably not it when you were young, but you tell me. I think probably running a surf shop would, would have been my ambition as an eight-year-old. I grew up and my sister and I used to sell seashells by the seashore. And <laughs> that was my first taste of entrepreneurship. Oh, I love it. What seashore was that you grew up in? That's Ocean City, Maryland. Proud resident, a small mid-Atlantic blue-collar beach town. I've been there. I've been there. I've been when I was younger, a couple of years, we went on family vacations there with my parents and my brother and and all that stuff. Uh, oh, nice. It's a lovely place. I love going home. All right. One more question looking back. What was your first deal of any type? It could be something small when you were growing up as a kid or it could be something early in your career. Anything that comes to mind as a deal? You know, the the first the first deal actually got regulated out of existence. So <laughs> when I was doing the seashells, what we would do is we would buy a bushel of dirty seashells from the fishermen for $2. Yeah. And then we would sit in the backyard behind the, beneath our steps, we would soak them in bleach and then we would scrub the living heck out of them. And then we would sell them for $2 a piece, which was nice. quite a, quite an ROI. And then I got, at one point I started paying my sister, I think 50 cents an hour while she was selling these seashells. And it was a great, it was a great business. Until my parents found out, and then they they regulated that all profits shall be split equally between two. <laughs> well, they, they didn't like the, the the ratio of pay between the CEO and the and the low level worker, <laughs> which is still an issue that people raise today. <laughs> it, it was good. I think that was a good ethical lesson to learn earlier. Honestly, love it. All right, tell us a little bit more beyond what, what's in the bio about what you're doing now with the two the two companies, and, and then we'll tie it in one of the deals. But just give us a general description of what you're up to. Yes. Kumo Space is the world's largest provider of virtual offices, 20,000 teams, Google, KPMG, Primerica, uh, all they have employees that show up in Kumo Space virtu- and they 
do work. They tap each other on the shoulder, get quick answers. They create assets. They host events, but they just do it all virtually in our sort of unified video chat platform. And we started that in 20 during the pandemic, raised a seed from Bullstar Ventures, Ed and Elliot, and then raised a Series A from Lightspeed from Paul Murphy there. Just cranking along. We gave a nice presentation today at a Innovation Ventures conference. And then, so that's that's on the operating side. And then on the investing side, uh, I run Charge Ventures, which is a New York, Brooklyn-based pre-seed venture capital fund. We're on our third fund. We've got close to 70 portfolio companies. And we try to be the first check into the next great entrepreneurs coming out of uh, New York City. Love it. So let's, let's take them in reverse order. You gave us a little bit of the criteria there. What else do you look for? What, is, what makes an investment of that? Because obviously, at that early stage, you're not talking about companies that have profits or three years of financials or a lot to go on. But but at the same time, you're not investing in there. I'm sure like every other good investor, you're investing in a tiny percentage of what comes across your desk. So how do you determine? Markets. The market is changing. Let me tell you, I'm yeah. looking at some pre-seed deals now. We write really 250 to 750k checks into a company just getting started. Our ideal profile is two brilliant gals in a working out of a um, out of an apartment in Bushwick, and they've you know shown sufficient scrappiness to get a product out there, get some early, early traction. And and nowadays during the height of the run up in twenty one, yeah, you could people were raising money before they even quit their job at Google. Right. And the market has cooled a little bit, mercifully. And you'd be surprised. We see people, I, I'm looking at some deals right now, 5 million post-20 valuation, and they have half a million in revenue this year in 2020. That, Pretty impressive, right? You're talking 10X recovery that went from, it grew infinity percent this year. <laughs> so yeah, that's what we do. I, we've narrowed the aperture after investing for 10 years. We basically do software. We focus on kind of, creator economy, future of work. We do crypto. And then we I used to cover healthcare services a long time ago on Wall Street. So we do a fair amount of uh, healthcare as well. But that's what we do. And really, it, it is all about the founder. I think you're accurate on that. It's all about, I'm sorry, say it again? It, it's all about the founder. I think our, our unique sort of focus is on founder market fit. What what is the unique connection between a founder and the market they're going after? Often it's, hey, I worked in this industry for 10 years and I saw a bunch of broken stuff. Now I'm going to fix it. But it could also be, I have a deep personal connection to this particular problem. My my mom got cancer and I just went, I went crazy figuring out a better solution and digging into the research and I've got something better. That's what we're looking for is someone that like, has a unique insight about whatever problem they're trying to solve. I mean, Chuck, that must be first-time founders, right? Uh, as opposed to serial entrepreneurs, or at least serial funding, funded entrepreneurs. Yeah, look, I've been in New York Tech for 20 years. Yep. And when we have a lot, a fair number of our investments are, are in repeat founders building their second, yep. third company. They've started, they sold their last company for $100 million. And we're fortunate enough to have the opportunity they, to to participate in their rounds. And and honestly, we're just grateful and that we have these relationships and access to those folks. There's really nothing. Just be able to get allocation on those rounds because they're fundable management teams. Exactly. They have the choice. They get to pick yeah. whose money they take. And I, there's no, I don't think there's any unique insight there, only unique ac- access. Yeah. 
Where I would say that we're probably different than a lot of other funds is that maybe a little bit less techno hubris in the sense that I think there's a lot of investors that say, oh, this person came from Google or worked at Uber and they went to Stanford and they're going to go fix logistics. And we're going to give them $3 million on a $20 million post-money valuation. And they've built nothing. They have never done anything entrepreneurial. And they honestly didn't know anything about trucking until a month ago when they started a company and applied to YC. We're not really interested in that. Some of those can work. Obviously, really smart people who went to Stanford and worked at Uber. No offense. Not that we won't back you. It's just that you better have some really crazy insight into the market. And the fact that ChatGPT, you can put a bunch of company documents into OpenAI's API, and then you can have a chatbot that will talk to you about what's in those documents is not a particularly interesting insight for us. What we're way more interested in, actually, and where I think we differentiate, where Church Ventures differentiates itself, is... We will take a bet on folks with an unconventional background that didn't go to Ivy League schools that have proven the ability to put points on the board. And so what I mean by that is not someone who's – I saw this tweet the other day I freaking loved. It said, I lose sleep over the fact that somewhere out there – or the quote said, somewhere out there, there's someone with 30 less IQ points out there trying stuff while you're still, quote, exploring ideas. Right. And I love this quote because I think there's this, especially with folks who went to Ivy League schools or whatever, there's this idea that's all about intelligence and it's all about book smarts and it's all about how well you score in tests. When in entrepreneurship, it, it is frankly, that's important, but honestly, give me grit, give me persistence, give me a thick skin and someone's going to run through walls any day or over that person. Yeah. Essentially, because there's this other, there's obviously all these competing sayings and, and everything, including the entrepreneurial world. But the one I love on the other, it's on the other side of it is the saying that the A students end up working for the C students in the entrepreneurial world. I 100%. And so I think that's where we like to differentiate ourselves in charge is that lots of people willing to give checks to that former Uber engineer that went to Stanford, not still even though we talk about the glut of seed funds and the seed funding, there's still not a lot of folks who will write that first 500K check to someone that doesn't have the pedigree. But that's where we love to focus because we think that if this person has shown the ability to, despite not having that privileged background, against all odds, get a product in the market, get some early traction, get some customers, that person, uh, that's to us shows great potential. And we love getting behind folks like that. Love that. So talk, talk to me a little bit. So let's take the extreme example. First time founder, doesn't have that, not only Ivy League, but hasn't come up in that world where maybe there are a lot of things that they don't understand, certainly about like future fundraising, let's say. They've never gone through that that funding cycle before. Talk about that that journey for them and the learning curve and, and what happens uh, with the ones who are successful versus the ones who are less. You're talking about folks that, they have to learn how to build a proper business because they've never had the luxury of, they've been resource constrained since the very beginning, right? They don't have the luxury of wasting a bunch of money on building stuff that no one wants because they don't have the money, they don't have the money to spend on it. I, I mean, there's so many great examples in our portfolio. I, one that comes immediately to mind is 
a young man named Louis Black. And so he runs this company called Just Play. It's basically a local marketplace for pickup sports. So pay $10, get to play a pickup soccer game or basketball game or volleyball game. And I found out about this company through one of our other portfolio founders, Tarek, who built and sold a company called Uncube. They sold it to recruiter.com. And a good friend of mine, he... On the side, he used to run this thing called NYC Footy, which is the largest soccer, largest sort of adult soccer league in New York City. And he told me, he said, hey, Brett, you got to check out this kid Lewis's company. He's somehow based in the UK and he's sneaking permits, basically permits for soccer fields. He's sneaking them away from me, all from all the way from London. I don't know how he's doing it. He's getting these permits. And, and Tarek, to his credit, he said... If he's going to disrupt my business, I might as well invest in him. So Tarek and Angel Angel invested in him. And I said, okay, let's always take a recommendation from my founders. And I meet this kid, Lewis. And Lewis is literally one of these most tenacious guys. He has built this army of really well-educated former consultants from Latin America that worked at Deloitte or Ernst & Young. And he's paying them basically the the same they're getting paid there, but now they get to run their own business and they're building, going on Facebook, clicking on, like signing up games and getting games started and for just play in the middle of, in the middle of America. And he's built this 40 team of 40 of these guys. He hasn't spent spent any money. And I was like, holy crap, this kid is resourceful. And that's exactly what we're looking for is people that can do a lot with a little. Love that. Love that. And then how active are you guys in, in the role? As an early stage investor, some of these, they may be great at that, but probably need some sort of mentoring and understanding of connections to folks that not having ever scaled the business before, that would help do that, raise additional capital, things like that. Talk to us about your role in addition to private money. It's interesting. I feel like our role is changing and I have learned some lessons over the last cycle. Like, I think, yeah, I think, so Sam Lesson at Slow Ventures put out a nice post recently about the new outlook for venture. He talks a lot about the kind of factory model of venture capital that developed over the past 10 years, which was, okay, we're going to invest and package it up and then hand it off to the next set of investors and take our markup. And I think to some extent, we had viewed our role as pre-seed investors as basically, I, there was a really nice arbitrage opportunity between pre-seed and seed over the last cycle, which was essentially, I always felt like seed was the, how to describe it? You got paid, you got the least, as an investor, you got the least reward for the risk you're taking. So you basically, any sufficiently scrappy entrepreneur, in my opinion, could scrap together 10K in MRR, 30K in transactional monthly revenue. And it didn't really prove anything about product market fit. And so our strategy had historically been Okay, let's get, you know, let's just identify that person who's scrappy enough to do that. We'll invest in them before they've got any traction. And then we'll help them get those first couple customers. We'll help them tell a story. We'll help them, you know, hire their first couple employees. We'll package it all up and then we'll take it to our friends at the couple million dollar funds. And that's great. Then we can move on. And that worked great. We got in at a third the price. We were getting in a third the price. And taking a first bet and building strong relationships with these folks. Unfortunately, the problem that I have learned over the past decade is that 
these later stage funds, and I don't really mean seed funds actually as much as I mean the kind of like multi-stage Series A funds, just literally cannot be trusted with these companies. Mm. They will put $20 million in these companies and absolutely ruin them and not care because to them, $20 million is a $200 to me. Although I, I still care about $200. So I don't even, the analogy doesn't hold. It's 20 cents to me. And what I realized is like the, the job is not done even after the handoff. And we always stay in touch with these companies, but now I'm rethinking the portfolio strategy and maybe being more and more concentrated, which is ch- scary at a pre-seed level, just so that we are justified in maintaining the more active relationship longer, just to keep counseling these companies so that they don't just literally raise $20 million and light it on fire, which unfortunately I've seen more than I'd like to admit. Got it. And and did you say did you say this is the third fund that you raised? Uh, yep, we're investing out of our third fund. Third fund, great. So talk, talk to me a little bit on that side of things. Who are your investors and how is it set up? Is it these aren't SPVs? These are true funds, right? Where you guys have decided what you're investing them in. Yep, it's a standard blind pool investor venture capital fund. And so I run charge with my partner. His name's Chris Sabachi. Great guy. Introduced by my Fulbright advisor, Thomas Papadimitriou, almost a decade ago now. And yes, we are LPs. We, we have large sort of multifamily, billion-dollar multifamily offices and yep. some small kind of fund-to-funds folks. Right. Love it. So let's go over the Kumo Space side. You said in, in that business, you guys raised capital. So you were on the other side of the table there, right? I've been on both sides many times. Okay, great. Yeah, so <laughs> let's talk about that contrast a little bit. I always find, I always love when people have been on multiple sides because I, I I used to say this when I was at Big Law and I had this vision that, you know, of all the things they're doing wrong and how I could do them better and all that kind of stuff. And it was probably 80% true, but there was that 20% of stuff that when I got to the other side, I was like, oh, all right, that's why uh-huh. they do it that way. You know what? <laughs> I can see it now. So talk to, I'm always interested in asking people who've been on, on both sides of the of the table, the fence or the whatever it is, on, on some of those things they've realized when they maybe started on one side and went to the other side or interesting realizations. Yeah, I think people ask me, oh, does being an investor help you, has it help you be an entrepreneur or vice versa? I think being an entrepreneur definitely helps me support my portfolio companies better. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I can give way better tactical, relevant, real-time advice. You want to build an influencer marketing strategy, or you want to set up a, pipe, a pipeline or build an inbound sort of PLG motion, right? I can literally tell you, okay, these are the step-by-step things that we're doing. So definitely can help portfolio co- companies better. I think it helps with the diligence in the sense that you can ask people questions and if they aren't really doing, if they're not really doing it or they're not in the weeds enough, you can sniff that out pretty quickly. Yep. And I think you can resonate with founders about, okay, this is what a real founder feels like. They, they are, they're not too academic or too, too corporate or too abstract about things. I don't think it doesn't really help you. I'm not sure if it helps you pick companies better. I, I actually think that. Being an investor or uh, being an investor 
definitely helps you pick businesses better, right? You'd be surprised. A lot of entrepreneurs, it's weird. They don't always have great taste in something that is just in, inherently profitable or, or a good business. And they're so in the weeds about fixing things that they, as investors, they don't realize, actually, I don't have to fix this. I can just pick the next company that comes along. I can keep looking. Yeah. So yeah, I think those are the opposite sides and how they affect each other. Got it. Awesome. <laughs> Let's take a break from the show for a minute so I can tell you about an incredible resource my team and I have put together for you. Secrets of Deal-Driven Growth, Creative Ways to Grow Your Business Even in Challenging Times is a powerful ebook that helps you take DealQuest podcast episodes and apply them to your own life and business. This is the ideal tool for anyone looking for creative ways to grow as dealmakers, and you can get yours now. It's as easy as heading to coreycuffer.com slash workbook and downloading your copy. While you're there, you can also consider joining our dynamic deal-driven community of founders, experts, small business owners, and entrepreneurs. Now back for the show. So give us a little more. I, I want to understand. So you said Kuma Space is Kuma Space is the largest virtual. Give give that to me again. I want to understand what I want the audience to fully so, understand what that is. We have the yeah, we call it we call it a virtual office. Okay. A virtual office is a unified kind of video chat platform, communications platform yep. where teams will show up. They open up Kuma Space, they go in at nine and then they leave at five or five or six. And during the day, they're there, they're available for their team. You can see who's around and it makes it really easy to collaborate. You know, no more of this, hey, little green dot, are you actually available? I say, hey, hey you're around. Message an hour later, you get a response. Okay, actually, let's schedule a you know Zoom call for tomorrow, and then we have a a thirty minute Zoom call to talk about something that could have taken five minutes yesterday. Now it's just hey, tap someone on the shoulder, get an answer to your question, yeah. and get back to work. So the average people spend seven six to eight hours a day in Kumo space in their virtual office in our kind of video chat platform, but they average meeting is only seven to eight minutes. Yeah, yeah. And so people have less meetings and fewer meetings and shorter meetings, and they can just focus on getting answers to their questions and getting work done. And then what that happens, what happens is people actually start interacting more frequently, but again, fewer and shorter is just fast. And then people actually start building culture. They start building rapport. You actually start interacting with a broader group of people because you can see who's there. You can actually see you on the, who's in the marketing department. Yeah. All the kind of context that we lost when we started working from our desk. Right? Yes. Kumo Space brings that back and helps people collaborate more. So to really differentiate it, so what would be the difference between a bunch of people hopping on a Zoom or Teams meeting versus what they could do in Kumo Space? We don't have to hop on. Again, that, that, yeah. that's the point, right? Like to Zoom, a Zoom meeting, you have to plan it. We had this yeah. calendar invite here yeah. for a week and I got an invite and I got a little reminder and then and we had to schedule that. And whereas Kuma says, you're already there. You're already on. And so it, it look, it's not for everyone. It's not for everyone. If you don't want to make a commitment to your team to be there and be accountable from nine to five, it's not that you can't leave your desk. We have a status. You could say away. You can say, yeah. I'm in focus mode, but sure. it's a different way of working remotely that actually means we're going to be accountable for people. We're going to show up and we're going to collaborate quickly and effectively and like really get you done. And the goal of that is not 
it's it's not just for employees. It's also for managers, right? As a manager, I am committing to be available to my team. We we all know what a mess sort of it is for young employees to be brought into a fully remote workforce, right? They can't learn. They don't get any mentorship, and so part of Kumas is, is as managers committing to be available and. Yeah, it's not for everyone, but if you're trying to kick ass and take names and win and have the flexibility of working from wherever you are in the world and hiring the best people in the world and not having to pay for brick and mortar and glass, and that's that's who Kuma Space is for. Yeah, listen, I I really get it. I just I was just I was delving in more because I wanted to make sure the 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 listeners and viewers really understood it because I know that I mean, listen, we went virtual in 2015, <coughs> so way wow. before the pandemic. I split up a, a partnership at that time and had done an analysis. And, and this is as a law firm. So we're not like the reason I say this because <laughs> law firms are not cutting edge, new work, tech, whatever. We're not, we weren't a tech firm. Uh, so Kudos that, to you guys. Team, yeah. And I always say that, listen, for the most part, my success and what I've been able to build and clients we have, whatever, is just hard work doing great service, not particularly being ahead of the game on anything. This is one of the exceptions where we were certainly ahead. <laughs> and it was because I it was because I did an analysis at the time when I was splitting up this partnership. I looked and I said, I don't think we meet with anybody in the office anymore. Even back then, I just had this sense. It just doesn't. And we were ready, obviously, a lot of more conference calling them, but we did use some Zoom and obviously everything was long on the cloud. And I actually had my, my assistant do uh, analysis the last two, three years of uh, my calendar. And it was, so now we're talking about looking back two, three years from 2015. So now we're going back 2012, 2013. And my hunch was right. People weren't meeting anymore. I would be getting, I'd be getting introduced to, to a client. They would sign an engagement letter via email or even back then, it wasn't even DocuSign or Adobe Sign or anything. It was just it was email and, <laughs> and 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 we would do tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars of work for them, and I'd never meet them. I'd have to. So I was already in that mode, and we did it successfully. But we're not a huge organization. We got eight, ten folks, and and it works really well. When I talk to a lot of my entrepreneurs, my my clients, people in the EO, all these folks, whatever, the bigger organizations, it doesn't that model doesn't work for everybody. And we keep connected in various ways. And of course, many of us work together in the same office. We've successfully added people. But there is what what you're doing is you're creating a it's almost a hybrid for me where you get a lot more of the experience and feeling and the feel of being in an office with people, much more collaborative, interactive, that equivalent of sticking your head in somebody's door and saying, hey, I got a quick question, can we, which which we don't, you know, have as much, at least not seamlessly, I get, hey, can we hop on a Zoom or whatever? And at our scale, it, it works, but I can see how a lot of folks in my ecosystem who said, oh, I can never, I don't know, worried about going virtual, I can never go virtual, would be a lot more comfortable with this solution to say, hey, there are ways we can uh, approximate and keep that community together and have people where it's, it's somewhere in between, so to speak. Ironically, a lot of the reasons why why people use Kumo Space are the exact same reasons often that they are pushing so hard on the return to the office, right? They're trying right. to, it's like, what do we lose when we went virtual or when we went remote? And I think we all realized, wow, we can be really productive from our desk. I think that was the collective surprise yes. during the pandemic. It's, Holy yes. crap, we can get a lot done a- at home. Obviously, there, and, and I think about this, it's not that I don't believe in person. It's not, I was at a conference today in person. I, of course, it's great to close deals in person. I'll go out and meet an entrepreneur if I need to close a deal. But guess what? 90% of my work 
as a venture capitalist can be done sitting in front of my is done sitting in front of my computer, yes. right? And managing a team is the same thing. And so I don't need to be in an office to do, let's say, 70, 80% of my work. And so what Kubernetes focuses on is, okay, well, what is that 20, 30% that, that, that's missing? What are those gaps? And those gaps are visibility, accountability, quick, speedy collaboration, yeah. and the culture that comes from repeated repeat interactions. And so all we're saying is, hey, look, of course, it's not the same as being a person, but wow, it's pretty good. And there's a lot of benefits to being remote. Yeah, that's why I, I feel like it's, you could argue that the best of both in some ways, because yeah, people don't have to deal with the commutes and, and all that kind of stuff. They can have the benefit of being able to be home and take the dog out for a walk and or you know, or see the kid when they come home from school, but then go back to work. All that stuff that people like about remote work, but at the same time get the benefits. Yeah, no, that's it's great. In terms of that, and obviously I don't know how much you're comfortable sharing, not sharing, but so you raise some money on that. What is the what's the future plans in terms of the, the growth and any other kind of deals that you may be looking to do if, if there's anything you're comfortable sharing? Oh yeah, yeah. We actually just acquired a competitor called Cozy. I guess maybe two months ago, great CEO, Giannis there. It built a really nice business. And we. I think this industry is going to consolidate. In general, there are a lot of new tools that came out during the pandemic. And we're in a consolidation phase right now. A lot of CFOs are they're thinking tool consolidation. They want less tools. They want less bills. They want unified, community, unified platforms, one, one place. And so... We, we recognize that trend and see an opportunity to bring some of these other folks that built nice point solutions for remote work into the fold and then become this one-stop shop unified communications platform that is great for any team that's, that's distributed. And, and it doesn't need to be any team that becomes sufficiently large becomes distributed, right? Coca-Cola is a distributed team. Google, PwC, these are distributed teams. They have offices all over the world. And so eventually, I think if you're in the design team, which is spread across five offices, you're going to need some sort of purpose-built solution to help you stay connected. And so that's what that's where we are, and that's where it's going. In terms of the drivers for that acquisition and other lists that you may be doing, you already said this consolidation of the space. So when, when there's a space that's very, that hasn't consolidated yet, and then consolidation comes, there is often this decision about, okay, do we buy, do we do acquisitions, do we grow? And for some folks, if we don't, our competitors are going to, and it's going to be tough to compete. Is that some of the, that's some of the drivers there? Are you also looking at what else are you gaining? Is it talent? Deals are done for different reasons, right? Sometimes it's geographic expansion, sometimes it's talent, sometimes it's, there's a cool, cool tech piece you can integrate into your own tech or pro, whatever it is. Any of those drivers? I'm curious what... Uh, we've looked at we looked at all of them. There are acquisitions that we looked at for sort of tech acquisitions. Maybe it was like hey, we wanted to. We didn't end up doing this, but for a while we were looking at companies that had already built out a more robust chat platform than ours because yeah. we realized Slack is obviously a, one of the biggest beneficiaries of the whole remote trend, and we don't need people. We can build. We can. It turns out we can build chat too. And so we didn't end up buying that. We actually built it, but we're basically dropping in the best of Slack into Kumo space. And so for a lot of teams, they're looking at, hey, I'm already paying for Zoom. I'm paying for Slack. I'm paying for 
teams as well. Like, why don't we just get Kumo space and, yeah, and yeah. save that dollar, have one tool, have all of our information, our assets in one place. We looked at that. We didn't end up doing it because we realized we could just build it faster ourselves. We, this was just purely kind of customer customers. They had had a slightly different geography of customers and we just saw an opportunity in that there were some larger logos that they had that we felt maybe we could expand, do some account expansion on. Yeah, that's a great reason to do the deal. So we talked a little bit about, in some of your answers, about how things have evolved in the changing market compared to certainly what it was when things were a little, you know, hotter. That's interesting. A part of it depends about what segment you're in, but I did a recap. I usually do a, a recap in terms of what's going on in deals generally. Once or twice a year, I did one mid-year this year, and there were a lot of stats around the deal volumes, deal valuations, deal in, in a lot of industries being down from what they were at the height last year. Obviously, there are exceptions. AI, <laughs> for example, I do a lot in financial services. So in the like in the investment advisory space, just because there's a lot of talking about consolidation, a lot of new PA monies that's come in mainly in the last five years, and that there was a sort of a dip first quarter, but then things have taken off again. So I know it depends upon segment, but in any case, any other sort of things or trends or evolutions that you're seeing that are interesting in your space from either or many of your perspectives? Yeah. AI is obviously the, the talk of the town. I, when people ask me how the market is, I am like, it reminds me of when you have a, a dinner in your freezer and then you pull it out and then you throw in the microwave and then one bite is freezing cold and the next bite is scalding hot. I and mean, that's how the market is right now in Q4 2023. And obviously, if you're attached to AI, I, I think we're actually reaching we're heading toward the trough of disillusionment already we've already reached peak hype and people are getting sick of it we are, our attention spans aren't that long frankly but for a while you were still seeing kind of these 100x multiples in ai companies raising several hundred million dollars with a million dollars in revenue maybe and everything else was just getting valued at six eight times if you're i have a DDC company that has 85% gross margins, recurring revenue, and people are trying to value at a multiple of EBITDA. So, it, which it probably should be in companies like this, but it's just crazy the, the, the delta. So, I think if you're willing to look at some spaces that maybe aren't super hot, then there's some great deals to be had right now. Yeah. Yeah, that's one thing I've I've talked about often on the podcast is that people who aren't as savvy or familiar or experienced doing deals think that the market they make assumptions with certain things going on. All right, cost of capital has gone up. Okay, that that by definition might must be putting a damper on deals. Yes, in some ways, right? But or the economy is terrible and whatever. No, some of the best deals ever have been done in really bad economies, right? It's just the types of deals shift, the different deals, the structures, all that kind of stuff. Uh, but there's always deal opportunities. Is one of the messages I've always said. And I've again, I've seen, I've seen some of the most successful deals done in more challenging times than than the the boom times. That's for sure. I was talking to a private equity guy today, and this guy's having a field day. He's Going around, bottom feeding, throwing some debt onto a bunch of these ventures that raised too much money and didn't go anywhere. I have a former employee that is looking to buy a company that took a $4 million in seed money, only didn't really get very far on 
revenue, maybe only the like 60K ARR, but built a nice software product, didn't figure out how to go to market motion. And he's thinking about picking this thing up for pennies on the dollar and then taking it to market. And this, I, if I know him, he's going to get this thing to a million in, in less than a year. So ton of great opportunities out there. Yeah, love it. Before I ask you my final two questions, is there anything else that comes to mind that I haven't asked you about that they could be valuable to the audience or any good stories you have or anything you want to say? I mean, I, all I know is if you're you know out there raising pre-seed, building some software in New York City, I would love to, would love to hear from you. And shamelessly plug Kumo Space as well. If you're building and you got a distributed team and you want it to be high performance, definitely give us a call. Awesome. So that does lead into my into my second to last question, which is how can people find out more about you and your various businesses? Oh, yeah. Just you can shoot me an email, Brett. B-R-E-T at kumospace.com. If you're looking for an office or brett at charge.bc. If you're looking for funding and just drop Corey's name in the specific lines. So I, I, I know it's legitimate. All right. Sounds great. So my final question on the podcast is always about my highest value in life, which is freedom. And for me, that means everything from freedom around the world, from old people, from oppression to why I've been an entrepreneur for decades and haven't had a boss. <clears throat> but what does freedom mean to you and how does it impact your life and business? Wow. We share similar philosophy. I think autonomy. I've only worked two years post-college and I'm unfortunately 20 years post-college at this point. So highly, I highly appreciate autonomy. And I, and I think, I guess for me, the freedom to be fully self-expressed is mm-hmm. the the highest form of freedom. And I think this is a freedom that really is one that we don't give to ourselves. So obviously there's a lot of convenient excuses about, oh, I'm worried about what people will think and I'm worried about how people will judge me and I'm worried about how this will impact my business. But the truth of the matter is that we really self-censor around our self-expression. And and I'm just as guilty as the next person. And so I feel like true freedom is this is the ability to be fully self-expressed at any any possible moment. And obviously that's a very privileged perspective as a white male in America of all places, but I'm so grateful for that freedom that I want everyone else in the world to have that freedom and, and people certainly don't. There's definitely oppressed groups and women all over the world that are so far from that freedom. And I'm just, I feel like I'd love to help them get that. So that's freedom to me. Love that. Love that. Brad, thanks for being such a great guest on the DealQuest podcast. Corey, thank you so much for having me. It was really a great conversation. Enjoyed it a lot. Thank you for joining me on this episode of DealQuest, where we help you understand how deal-driven growth can be your ticket to freedom. I want to invite you to a unique way to tap into the wisdom and experience of the DealQuest community. The Deal Den is a place where entrepreneurs, high-level executives, and business leaders come together, support each other's growth and success, and share what's working best, as well as what challenges we are facing right now. You will get input not only from me, but from all of our members. We collaborate and serve each other. To join us, go to coreycupfer.com slash dealden. I'll see you there. I'm Corey Kupfer. Until next week, wishing you the freedom and financial prosperity that I know your deal quest will bring.